Hi, everyone. From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, June 23rd. On today's show, Impact Alpha's David Bank reports from Austria, where he's at the Connecting Capital to Communities Gathering at the Salzburg Global Seminar. Later, we'll hear his conversation with Michaela Kauer, an official with the city of Vienna, to talk about that city's model of social, affordable housing. Housing is not only a home with four walls and roof. Housing is the, the center of your life. But first, let's go over the headlines. Here's what you need to know from This Week in Impact Investing. A new global pact for development finance was on the table at a summit in Paris this week. Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley and others are pressing the World Bank and other development finance institutions to play a more catalytic role in attracting private investment for climate resilience in low-income countries. Also on the agenda are a levy on maritime shipping that could generate as much as $60 billion a year and a so-called climate resilience clause to allow countries to pause their debt payments in the event of natural disasters, such as a hurricane or a flood. Keisha Cash's Impact America Fund raised $112 million for its third fund. Impact America plans to invest in 30 early-stage companies with tech solutions that can uplift black and brown workers, families, and small businesses. Agent of Impact Heather Fleming has opened Change Labs Entrepreneurship Hub in Navajo Nation. Fleming has worked for years to overcome resource constraints and bureaucratic obstacles faced by Navajo and Hopi business owners. A federal law requires the Department of Interior to purchase supplies and services from qualified tribal vendors, but few indigenous-owned businesses are able to compete for such contracts. And an update to last week's conversation with Valerie Redhorse Mole of Known Holdings. The asset management firm has absorbed Black Gravity, a Black-led research and advisory group, which will establish an innovation lab under the Known umbrella. And now it's time for this week's conversation. David sat down with the city of Vienna, Austria's Michaela Kauer at this week's Connecting Capital to Communities gathering, which focused on solutions in food, housing, and water. Let's jump right into their conversation. So you are the city of Vienna's representative in Brussels. That's right. And uh, we are sitting here in Salzburg, near, near to Vienna, near enough to Vienna. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody's talking about uh, Vienna's solution to a problem that is bedeviling, I would say, um, cities, at least in the United States, um, uh, the housing shortage and mm-hmm. the affordability of housing. And Vienna has a social innovation that is uh, something like 100 years old, I think, dates to 1919. So mm-hmm. maybe you could just give us the, the brief overview of the social housing um, solution that uh, Vienna has developed over all that time. Yeah. So more than 100 years back in time, there was a huge housing problem in Vienna. A lot of people were sick, living in unhealthy housing. Tuberculosis was called the Viennese disease. And in 1919, the Social Democrats came into power and decided that this couldn't go on that way. And they decided also to set up a municipal housing scheme. And that that housing scheme was, in fact, based on a few elements which are prevailing until today. One is, how can we finance that? Affordable housing for the masses of people in need. How can we manage that? Municipal housing and cooperative housing at the core, at the heart of the whole system. 
how can we control rents? How can we protect tenants? How can we give them security? And how do we embed that in a vision of a sustainable city? That's a beautiful vision. And one of the more interesting things is that it's lasted for so long. Mm -hmm. um, and just let's cut to the end and then we'll come back. The effect now is that Vienna is considered one of the most affordable cities for housing, I think, in the world. Mm. Um, and I think people come around uh, from other cities and try to figure out uh, what, what you're doing right. So um, tell us just, for example, uh, just to take one indicator, what percentage of people's income they generally pay for housing? In, in general, they would pay like between 8 and 12% of their income for housing in municipal and cooperative housing. And you have to also know that Vienna is a city of 2 million and a quarter of these live in municipal housing and they pay a cost-based rent. It's not a subsidized rent. So the rent they pay allows us to build and manage and refurbish the building and maintain the building. Even, and even then, they still have only to pay like between 12, around 12% 12 of their income. And just to sort of level set for anybody who doesn't know this, although I think it's fairly known, is that around 30%, at least in the U.S., is considered uh, about what folks should pay for housing. Many people pay much more than that. And you're saying 8 to 12%. Yeah. And you're also saying that this is uh, not subsidized, that you're able to cover the cost of housing at that rate. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how that works. Uh, you say there's different categories. Just, just break it down for us. Uh, for instance, we have different, we have a variety also of housing solutions in Vienna. Obviously, we have the municipal housing stock, which is 220,000 flats for half a million people. We have a cooperative housing stock with uh, 200,000 flats for 400,000 people. And we have also a private rental and sector, which is protected by a strong tenancy law. So rents are regulated. Uh, the normal option for a contract is, uh, in unlimited contracts and there is a strong protection of tenants so the whole system is is based on the on a human rights uh, based approach i would say and for the for the financing we collect a tax in austria which is the housing tax which every employee and every employer pays a little bit of his income or what he has to pay uh, and that is that is going directly to the nine provinces of Austria, and Vienna is a city and a province, and that feeds into our housing budget, which is half a billion euros a year. And so one of the criticisms of rent control and other uh, measures in the, in the States, at least, is that uh, you would choke off the supply of new housing because you would uh, remove the incentives for developers to build housing. So is there a shortage of housing in Vienna or is there enough uh, for everybody uh, to have one of these uh, choice flats? You have, of course, as we are a growing city, we need to build new houses. And we have a new provision in our zoning law, which says that two thirds of any new urban development have to be subsidized municipal cooperative housing. And one third can be done by investors or private developers. But in the end, we saw that this huge quantity of affordable housing we have also has a price dampening effect. Now, I know that investors would not like to listen to this now, but for the people, and they are at the heart of our, our policy, it's very important to be in a stable market because creating security of tenure, protecting the people, making people feel well 
allows also them to have a better performance in the labor market, start their own business, educate their children well, and do a lot of things that are also good for the economy. So for us, protection of tenants and rent regulations are in a way the part of our long-term vision that our city must stay productive. So people have more income to spend on other things that builds a vibrant cafe life from other things or the, the music and culture or um, and you also mentioned that there's amenities in many of these um, developments there's childcare or health care or, yeah. or or obviously retail um, uh, so, so there's a kind of a whole social uh, fabric that gets built around the the, the the housing solution as well yeah we always uh, think that housing is not only a home with the four walls and roof housing is the, the center of your life and to be able to have a nice life, you have to have access to all kinds of services and you have to have sports facilities and playgrounds. Uh, one of the most lovely things that every Viennese kid will have and person will have these memories, there are these little swimming pools in the gardens, in the, in the parks, where only children are allowed in in summer for free and they can swim and, and have a nice, you know, refreshment. So it's very, uh, it's very, cozy in a way to be in Vienna. You said also earlier that there was a, every Viennese kid has the memory of the woman uh, scolding them for being too loud in the, in the, in the garden, I imagine. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, just in terms of financing, you said the city, there's a tax, the city will build housing. So this is, is public housing. I think public housing, again, in the States sometimes gets a bad reputation as run down or not maintained. Are these well maintained uh, apartments? All the apartments are well maintained. The biggest problem with speculative developments we had in the private sector for a long time. And in the private sector, we saw a lot of speculation and we set up uh, a program many years ago, which we called Gentle Urban Renewal. So that was addressing, of course, also the public and cooperative sector, but also the private sector and helping them to make their house, their, their, their apartments, their houses, better, but there were, was a condition with the money of the city that they must secure that the people stay in the house. When they redevelop the property? When they refurbish then... the building, when they put on you know, new, new windows, when they do, do uh, insulate the facades, when they add a, an elevator, which all, that, all these kind of things, you cannot pass on renovation costs to the tenants only. There is always a, a procedure whereby under a legal uh, audit also, monitoring. This is done in a cooperative way. Okay, so you mentioned cooperative again. And so the, I understand the, the municipal rental market, but cooperatives are owned by the uh, residents? or No, cooperatives are owned in, basically they, they come from also from history. A lot of them have been uh, connected to labor unions. Labor unions typically would have set up uh, housing cooperatives for their members. Some of them are also coming from the Christian, uh, social Christian uh, organizations and associations. Some of them can even be from companies who cared for houses for their employees. So, but their, their common denominator is that they must provide housing that stays affordable, that is always there for the, for the, for the tenants. And as a member of a cooperative, you kind of buy in with a small share. So you become a member co-owner of that cooperative and that entitles you to have a flat for your lifetime and you can even pass it on to your children. 
Now, if you do want to own, I mean, some people privately own their their housing, right? And that is just runs on market uh, basis? Mostly, but it's like Austria, Vienna is a city of tenants. 75% of the population live in rental. And municipal and cooperative is also said to be rental. And uh, like the 25% that are home ownership, uh, owner occupied, I must say, home ownership, they are basically the, the rather... There are detached houses in rather the outskirts of the city, in the outer districts, where we, in fact, it, it comes from the enlargement of the city where we integrated villages and small towns to become part of, of the city of Vienna. So that's, uh, that's possible, but you can also, yeah. So you said earlier that this was um, a sort of a response to a market that didn't work. Um, and so there is a little bit of a European or social uh, ideology here, but it's persisted, I think, through the twists and turns of, of Austrian and Viennese politics, um, regardless of parties? Yeah, I mean, you must know that Vienna has been ruled by the Social Democratic Party since the, the city was uh, was having the right to, to have its own government, so in 1919. And the only interruption was the time of fascism, World War II. Uh, but as in all all the times we have been building new new houses, we have been building around forty thousand between the two world wars. So that was the start of this huge municipal housing stock, and we also had to build a lot after World War Two because there was a lot of destruction. And of course, we are continuing to build. We have even continued to build uh, in in a way in a counter cyclical investment uh, when we had the global financial crash during COVID. We continued to build. So we really. At the moment, I think we have 15,000 new flats under construction. Not all of them cooperative or municipal, but most of them. And um, I imagine that anybody who tried to mess with this system would face uh, some opposition from people who uh, have gotten used to having affordable housing. So yeah. there's popular support for it. Yeah, I think that the, the, the beauty of the model is that, in fact, you do not have to be ashamed in Vienna. You're not stigmatized if you live in municipal or cooperative housing. In many other cities and places I've seen across Europe and the world, it stigmatizes people. And that's not good. In Vienna, we, we aim at a social mix all over the city. So all these municipal and cooperative housing are distributed all over the city territory. There is not such a thing like a no-go area or a ghetto or uh, a difficult place. Uh, and we are very proud of that. And people who live in municipal housing are especially proud. There are TV series go, who play in municipal housing, very funny ones. There is a core of municipal housing tenants. There, is a, there are theaters in municipal housing. There are musicians. During COVID, there were orchestras who were formed spontaneously with the musicians living in, in municipal housing. So in a way, we are very proud of that tradition. I think the New York Times article that got everybody's attention a, a few weeks ago called Vienna, the renters paradise um, and I imagine you have visitors uh, coming to see uh, how they could maybe replicate that is it possible to replicate that or does it need this long history and this social uh, cohesion you know for for for, for decades um, or can it be implemented in other places I've learned to be very humble about that because I know that Vienna is a role model but at the same time it can be a little bit overwhelming to see this quantity the sheer quantity with the price dampening effects. But what I would like to recommend if you want to take this over is really 
What is, who has control of land? How can you create financing systems that are revolving, where you keep the money in the system, where you say that any kind of profit that, for instance, a cooperative makes has to be reinvested for new housing, for renovation of existing housing. Never leave the system. Be bold when it comes to tenant protection. So these elements, you can reach it by different means and different instruments, but really keep control of your land, uh, never sell your municipal housing stock, never allow to sell cooperative housing, keep this going and, and running and even enhancing and protect your tenants and make them also uh, participants because I think that uh, as people pay a cost-based rent, there is an economic argument to participation and democracy and corporate governance in the housing sector means that we have tenants councils, that we have strong tenants unions, that we have tenants protection and that we design the places with the people. There have been tweaks and, and uh, reforms over, over the years um, to try to keep up with different conditions that might be changing. What, what is, what's an example of some of that? You were telling me a little bit earlier about some of the recent changes. Mm -hmm. we, we do a lot of research and we want to know where do we, because housing development is something that takes years. So in order to know where the journey should go, uh, we look at demographic developments. And what, what we saw that, of course, as in many other cities, we have a rise in single mother families. So we saw that for them, of course, life is harder. It's not so easy. So we set up a municipal housing complex now, which has just been opened a few months ago, that is dedicated to single mothers with special amenities that help them organize themselves, that help them, you know, do the normal stuff that they have to do, but it's hard enough to do it alone. So really it's dedicated to, to them. Another innovation we have is the so-called smart flats. These are, there we have started to think about architecture. For instance, you, you, you come into the system and you are a young person and you're still, you know, not yet ready for a family, but one day you will be. So maybe there is an option to combine two flats into a bigger one. Or another option is that families, of course, they, the, chi the children grow, they go for studying, they come back, uh, they, they, they move out. And then in the end, the parents might not need such a big flat. So they also can change the flat and make two out of them. So we are trying to keep the system in itself also very flexible. And then the last thing, the cities in the U.S. and in particularly in California where I live have a huge problem of homelessness now mm -hmm. and people living on the streets in, ten in tents and in cars. Um, are there homeless people in Vienna? Yes, there are. It's a very sad phenomenon that we also have seen. Um, and uh, I think that one of the biggest problems is, for instance, the hidden homeless women who because if uh, sometimes they have children, so they stay with partners who are abusive uh, and violent rather than moving out or sleeping on the streets because they have to the children. But also we have homeless people coming from other places in Austria, from Hungary sometimes, and, but we have a lot of services for them as well. So we try to really apply the housing first principle, trying to integrate people in fast into a first housing flat solution uh, but we also have homeless people with a lot of problems, so we have also services to take care of them. Okay, Michaela Cower, a, a systemic solution to a uh, big problem and uh, a financial innovation that's a uh, hundred years old. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. 
And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thank you, David and Michaela, for that great conversation. Our series of interviews from the Salzburg Global Seminar was made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. You can read more about all of these stories at impactalpha.com. Thanks again to David, Michaela, and our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Are you ready to try Impact Alpha? You can sign up for Impact Alpha Open, completely free, directly at impactalpha.com. If you want to go deeper, you can grab a subscription and get full access to Impact Alpha, which includes the award-winning Morning Brief and our very popular Agents of Impact Calls. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and choose an annual subscription. I'm Brian Walsh. Be sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until next time, take good care.